Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Sir, your letters of the 4th and 8th instant have been duly received, the last announcing the death of the venerable Mr. Wyth, than whom a purer character has never lived. His advanced years had left us little hope of retaining him much longer, and had his end been brought on by the ordinary decays of time and nature, although always a subject of regret, it would not have been aggravated by the horror of his falling by the hand of a parricide. Such an instance of depravity has been hitherto known to us only in the fables of the poets. I thank you for the attention you have been so kind as to shew in communicating to me the incidents of a case so interesting to my affections. He was my ancient master, my earliest and best friend, and to him I am indebted for first impressions which have had the most salutary influence on the course of my life. I had reserved with fondness, for the day of my retirement, the hope of inducing him to pass much of his time with me. It would have been great pleasure to recollect with him first opinions on the new state of things which arose soon after my acquaintance with him, to pass in review the long period which has elapsed since that time, and to see how far those opinions had been affected by experience and reflection, or confirmed and acted on with self-approbation. But this may yet be the enjoyment of another state of being. Accept my salutations and assurances of esteem and respect. Thomas Jefferson In June 1806, President Jefferson learned of the death of his mentor, George Wythe. But even worse than the fact that he passed away was the tragic mode by which this man for whom Jefferson had so much respect died. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to John Morden for providing the intro quote for this episode. John is a listener of the podcast who reached out, as I had mentioned in an earlier episode, that I would be glad to have listeners provide opening quotes. And as you can see, that offer is still open. I'm always looking for readers, so if you're a podcaster or just a listener with an interest in doing a reading, please feel free to reach out and I'll put you on my list of potential readers. John has done some voiceover work in the past, so if you enjoyed this reading and would like to work with him on a project, feel free to reach out to me via social media or email at presidenciespodcast at gmail.com and I'd be glad to connect the two of you. We last discussed with back in episodes 3.1 and 3.2, so if you don't remember him, that is understandable. With had trained Jefferson in the law and had been an example for him, not only of a well-respected lawyer, but, as described by John Meacham, quote, a noted statesman who had expensive taste and loved to entertain. With had seen his protege as well as so many young men who had studied under him over the years go forward into the world and rise to positions of prominence. Ultimately, though, this man who had made such an impact on future generations would be undone by a younger member of his own family. With sat down for breakfast on the morning of Sunday, May 25th, like normal, but soon after, he found that not only was he suffering from stomach discomfort, 
but that the other members of his household who had dined with him had suddenly fallen ill as well. Soon after, with and a mixed-race teenager named Michael Brown, who may have been with Son, were both dead. The local magistrate ordered an autopsy, which concluded that they had been poisoned, and the culprit is believed to have been With's grandnephew, George Sweeney. With had been widowed twice, and both of those marriages had been childless, so it could be that Sweeney thought he would profit from With's death. Ultimately, a good part of With's property went to his housekeeper, Lydia Broadnax. It has been speculated that With and Broadnax, a free woman of color, had a relationship of more personal nature and that Michael Brown may have been their child, which led some over the years to believe that maybe Sweeney was jealous of With's close relationships with these two people of color. That, though, is beyond the scope of this podcast to discuss, but some of my fellow podcasters may want to do a deeper dive into With's murder, as I'm sure there is much to unpack with that story from the annals of history. Looking at this from Jefferson's perspective, the loss of Wythe for a man who had lost so many loved ones over the years was a blow, especially since he was already anxious at the time about the future prospects of his own family as well as the affairs of state. In addition to the recent tensions with Spain and Great Britain, Jefferson was, in mid-1806, the head of a faction that was dividing between supporters of the administration and the allies of Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, Democratic-Republican from Virginia. Further. Jefferson was beginning to get criticized for the actions of one of his more zealous appointees. Pierpont Edwards had just been nominated by Jefferson and confirmed as a judge for the Court of the District of Connecticut in February. And by April, in a charge to a federal grand jury, he went out on a political limb and made some waves. In his charge to the jury, Judge Edwards asserted, quote, that a licentious press, unrestrained and unpunished, could eventually destroy the strongest government. Edwards's court would, in 1806, issue indictments for half a dozen people in Connecticut under charges of libel, including against a judge of the state Supreme Court, a newspaper editor, and a candidate for the ministry. Though, as Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone noted, the Connecticut libel issue would not receive much attention outside of the circle of Connecticut Federalists, it did eventually come to Jefferson's attention and would cost him support in New England, an area that he had actively been courting since the beginning of his presidency. It would also open him and administration supporters up to charges of hypocrisy, as Judge Edwards's arguments sounded quite similar to the arguments that had been made by Federalists in support of the Sedition Act back in the Adams administration. It was not the first time, nor would it be the last time, that the Jeffersonian faction of the Democratic-Republican Party was accused of being too akin to Federalists in terms of policy. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Though. As discussed in episode 3.30, there was reason for optimism that matters with Great Britain might be settled with the ascension of the more sympathetic Charles James Fox to the post of British Foreign Secretary. There is still much reason for concern as events continued to conspire against the restoration of good relations between the two nations. 
Before William Pinckney could set sail to begin his special mission to join U.S. Minister to Britain James Monroe in London to negotiate with the ministry of the new Prime Minister, Lord Grenville, in late April 1806, a British ship, the HMS Leander, while on a mission to search American vessels for British seamen, killed an American sailor with a warning shot fired on an American ship. Within eight days, Jefferson issued a proclamation asserting that the Leander's captain had committed murder and ordering the Leander as well as two other British ships sailing with the Leander out of U.S. waters, warning them never to return to American territory. It was around the same time of the Leander incident that Jefferson fell ill with one of his debilitating headaches. As described by historian John Meacham, quote, Jefferson could stand face-to-face meetings only in the evenings, when the pain seemed to have ebbed. He was suffering pain in his leg, too, and he was worried about money. Thus, despite his joy in the winter at having his beloved daughter, Martha Jefferson Randolph, and her family join him in Washington for the season, when the president finally left the federal capital to return home to Monticello on May 6th, the various public and personal stresses of his life hung like a pall over him. This visit would be a quick one, but he was greeted upon his return to Washington on June 7th with the news of George Wythe so one can only imagine Jefferson's mood at the president's house without any of his family with him as spring changed over to summer in 1806. For now, though, we must leave the president and turn our attention back to the West, where I must introduce you to an explorer that you may only have heard about in passing, or, for some of you, not at all. Zebulon Montgomery Pike was born in January 1779 in Trenton, New Jersey. His father had served in the Revolutionary War, and Pike inherited both his father's name and his interest in military service. As described by one of the editors of his journals, Stephen Harding Hart, quote, After very little schooling, Pike, then 15 years old, entered the army with nothing but his ambition and resolute spirit. Pike rose to the rank of 1st Lieutenant of the 1st Regiment of the U.S. Infantry by 1802, and, quote, was described as an efficient and zealous officer, strict in discipline, and gentlemanly and reserved in manner. He was studious, devoting his time to extending his military education to reading and to studying French. This good reputation brought the lieutenant to the attention of the head of the army, our old friend, General James Wilkinson. Soon after Wilkinson assumed his post as governor of the Louisiana Territory in July 1805, he authorized expeditions to explore the lands that encompass this vast territory. Pike was appointed as the head of the first expedition composed of, quote, three non-commissioned officers and 14 enlisted men to explore the Mississippi River to its head. As described by Wilkinson biographer Andrew Linkletter, quote, Pike fought his way through the swamps and pine forests of northern Minnesota and spent a hard winter near Cass Lake, which he identified as the source of the river. Lake Itasca, the real source, is about 30 miles away, before returning to St. Louis in April 1806. While the Pike Expedition of 1805 was ongoing, Wilkinson authorized and organized numerous other expeditions. One was led by Lieutenant George Peter to explore the Osage River, a tributary of the Missouri River in what is now western Missouri and eastern Kansas. Another was led by Wilkinson's own son, Lieutenant James Biddle Wilkinson, to explore the upper Missouri. Lieutenant Wilkinson's expedition, however, did not achieve its goal after an attack by Kickapoo warriors resulted in the death of one of the soldiers in the expedition, and it was decided to turn back. Beyond the Missouri River system, there was another key river system that President Jefferson was eager to have explored, and Wilkinson was more than happy to comply. 
The Dunbar Hunter Expedition of 1804 that we discussed in episode 3.235 had provided valuable information about the Washita River, but there was still so much more of the Red and Arkansas Rivers to explore. Jefferson had initially approached William Dunbar and George Hunter about taking on another expedition, but both declined this go-round. Thus, Jefferson and Wilkinson put their heads together to determine an alternate potential explorer, and both arrived at the idea of Lieutenant Thomas Freeman, who had worked the last few years as a surveyor on the American frontier. As described by historian Julie Fenster, quote, Freeman was still unmarried, moving around the country, not to live in its cities, but to map its backwoods accurately enough that cities might someday follow as the country pushed west. For Lieutenant Freeman, this new assignment would just be a continuation of his personal mission rather than an imposition on his regular life as it was for others. Joining Freeman on this effort would be Peter Custis, a medical student who also happened to be related to Daniel Park Custis, the first husband of the late former First Lady Martha Washington. An Army officer who had been stationed in New Orleans, Captain Richard Sparks, was assigned to accompany the Red River Expedition with a group of soldiers under his command, for there was some inherent danger in engaging in this expedition. The Red River Expedition would be going not only into disputed territory, but it was known to some on the frontier, including William Dunbar, that the Spanish were gathering forces around Nacogdoches and Tejas, as discussed last episode. Dunbar wrote to Jefferson recommending that Freeman's expedition explore the Arkansas River, which ran parallel and to the north of the Red River, in order to avoid the Spanish. Jefferson, however, was insistent on an expedition up the Red River. Again from Fenster, quote, the fact that Freeman was set to explore the Red River on behalf of the United States was not a secret, yet the intrigue surrounding it stands as a clear reflection of the loyalties of the citizens of Orleans Territory. In fact, during early 1806, the mail pouches to Nacogdoches were thick with messages from New Orleans tipping off Spanish authorities to the plans for the Freeman expedition. On May 1, 1806, Freeman and his expedition departed from Fort Adams near Natchez in the Mississippi Territory, bound for the powder keg that was the Tejas-Orleans Territory frontier. It was a day prior to Freeman and his expedition setting off that Lieutenant Pike and his expedition returned to St. Louis. As described by Pike biographer Jared Orsi, quote, Overall, the expedition can be termed a limited success. Pike did not find the exact headwaters of the Mississippi, but he reached the general vicinity. He brought no chiefs to St. Louis, but a few straggled downstream on their own behind him. He did not establish an American presence, but he stayed alive, and so did his men. His greatest achievement was to begin mapping the web of connections that knitted people and land together in the upper Mississippi country and beyond. Three days after his return, Pike learned that he was being given a new assignment. He would be leading a group of 23 men on an expedition west into Spanish territory. In Wilkinson's official instructions to Pike, he was directed to convey part of the delegation of Native people who had visited the president in Washington, D.C. back to their villages, as well as learn more about the natural resources of the West, quote, in particular, to explore the rivers of the Great Plains. If the United States was to get the upper hand on the Spanish in the West, they needed to establish good relations with the native peoples of these new lands and learn all that they could that could be used to their advantage. Though it would take Pike time to get this new expedition organized, as spring gave way to summer in 1806, it's not clear whether Wilkinson was just not afraid to provoke a conflict with the Spanish that may start a war, or 
if Wilkinson was just carrying out his part of the Burr conspiracy. Jefferson and the administration on the East Coast was well aware of the issues on the borderlands and worried that both the Orleans and Louisiana territories might be slipping from their grasp. After meeting with his cabinet, it was decided that they had to focus their efforts on retaining the Orleans territory as that was the more valuable territory, both economically and strategically. Thus, orders were sent for nine Navy gunboats to be sent to defend New Orleans and ground forces in the West were repositioned to be prepared to defend the territory no matter what direction the attack came. Determining the most imminent threat to be on the Tejas border, instructions were sent through Secretary of War Henry Dearborn to General Wilkinson, directing him to head down to the Orleans Territory, quote, and take upon yourself command of the troops in that quarter, together with such militia or volunteers as you may need for the defense of the country. Wilkinson in St. Louis received this letter on June 11th, just over a month after it was drafted. Wilkinson did not take the news well. As described by Linkletter, quote, All he could see was that his enemies had won. The order to leave St. Louis might be dressed up as a military deployment, but to Wilkinson's eyes, the harsh reality was to force him out of Louisiana. For some reason, he didn't see the possibilities that the order gave him for potential military glory or an opportunity to seek another payoff from the Spanish, or to be on hand to carry out Burr's schemes. Instead, Wilkinson only saw all the difficulties that he had experienced, both in terms of dealing with the populace of the territory, as well as his subordinates in the army, as discussed last episode, and he felt that the order to leave St. Louis was a rebuke of his efforts by the administration. After firing off a couple of angry letters to Secretary of War Dearborn and Senator Samuel Smith, Wilkinson did not reply to any more letters sent by the administration or those sent by Burr and the conspirators. Again from Linkletter, quote, Throughout the summer and fall of 1806, it was as though the commanding general of the U.S. Army and Burr's right-hand man had simply disappeared. Meanwhile, the Freeman and Custis expedition continued apace. As described by Fenster, quote, Freeman and Custis were well-matched colleagues. In science, their background represented the practical and the academic, respectively. Personally, the two seemed to get along well, being conscientious professionals, as were all of Jefferson's explorers. Unfortunately for them, they were also facing grave dangers ahead on their journey, a fact of which they were well aware. As soon as they arrived in Natchitoches on May 19th, at least two residents that we know of informed the Spanish officials on the border of the expedition's arrival and what information they had about their schedule to proceed up the Red River. The information exchange, thankfully for the expedition, was not just one way. Intelligence was coming in from informants in Spanish-held Nagadoches as well and confirmed that, quote, the Spanish had no intention of letting Freeman finish the voyage. After gathering what information he could from locals about the perilous natural conditions ahead on the river, in addition to the Spanish, Freeman did consider whether he should cancel the expedition and err on the side of caution. As he was pondering this option, Freeman received new orders from Secretary of War Dearborn conveyed through the commanding officer of a nearby fort. Quote, Another detachment of 20 soldiers had been detailed to fortify Freeman's party. First, for the purpose of assisting the exploring party to ascend the river to the upper end of the Great Raft. The second part of the directive was that the extra soldiers continue as far afterwards as might appear necessary to repel by force any opposition they might meet with. 
the administration was determined that the Red River Expedition would proceed. On June 2nd, the Freeman and Custis Expedition continued up the river, just as a Spanish lieutenant, Juan Ignacio Remo, set out with 240 mounted soldiers under his command to intercept the expedition. Wilkinson, meanwhile, was back in St. Louis, where he wrote out Lieutenant Pike's official orders on June 24th, directing him to have his expedition hitting the trail by mid-July. On the dot, on July 15th, Pike's second expedition left St. Louis. We'll catch up with Lieutenant Pike in a future episode, but for now, let's stay with the General for a moment more. At the same time as he was seeing the Pike expedition off, Wilkinson also sent some troops to reinforce Natchitoches. As described by Fenster, they were sent, quote, by the most circuitous route possible. On a personal note, as mentioned last episode, Nancy Wilkinson continued to suffer from tuberculosis and was slowly losing the battle. One can only imagine how this impacted the general, but it still in no way condones his behavior and the threat that his focus on his personal grievances posed to the soldiers under his command and citizens depending on the Army's defense. We'll have to see just how all that turns out. But for now, let's head back south to the Red River. Thankfully for Freeman and his compatriots, Ramon and his forces got lost in the wilderness and lost track of the expedition. In the meantime, the expedition arrived at a native village called Kawashita, which had been built, quote, on a handsome bluff about 30 feet high, composed of sandstone rock and washed by the river. The Ahuit, the leader of the native peoples of the village, was sympathetic to the Americans, and when the expedition set off again, they were accompanied by several guides from the village. Soon after they left, the Spanish arrived and learned that they had just missed the expedition. When the soldiers weren't looking, Dahuit sent two of his fastest runners off in a search of Freeman to inform him that the Spanish were on their trail and planned an ambush on the river ahead. With that knowledge, the expedition attempted to turn the tables on the Spanish forces and, as noted by Fenster, quote, they intimidated the Spanish far in excess of their actual numbers. Ultimately, though, the highest-ranking officer of the party, Commandant Don Francisco Viana of the garrison from Nagadoches, dismounted and talked with the Americans. His orders were to open fire on them if the Americans proceeded any further than the point of the ambush. Freeman, faced with the choice of a desperate combat against a far superior force, or living to explore another day, chose the latter. The next day, July 30th, the Freeman Custis expedition started back downriver. Though it ended prematurely, the Red River Expedition of 1806 did provide a wealth of information about the region, both in terms of the natural features and the native peoples of the area. For all the work that had been done to gather intelligence, Freeman, Custis, and their colleagues had managed to explore, quote, an area that was completely unknown to Americans. Freeman pronounced it a success, even if there were others who disagreed. Meanwhile, back on the East Coast, Representative John Randolph of Roanoke continued to stew over his discontent with the Jefferson administration and his loss of power in the recent congressional session. Thus, on June 19, 1806, he began writing out a defense of his position and actions taken in the course of the debate over the Floridas in the recent session. He asserted to his friend, Representative Joseph Nicholson, Democratic-Republican from Maryland, that, quote, I want nothing but justice to be done to my motives, which I know to have been upright, and I am content. 
Randolph felt that the Democratic Republicans had, quote, erected a political idol on whose altars he, who dared to mention its infallibility, must prepare to bleed. Randolph was in full-on martyr role, and in the decious letter, he came out swinging. Naturally, he would be glad for the U.S. to acquire the Floridas, quote-unquote, honorably. However, what the administration had done to date had been marked with subterfuge and opaqueness, and Congress, quote, could not dwindle into a mere chamber for enregistering ministerial edicts. Randolph wanted it to be abundantly clear to all that, from henceforth, he was out to ensure that Congress was not just a rubber stamp for the president's agenda. Jefferson, reading the letter at Monticello after it was printed, went off in a letter to his one-time private secretary and soon-to-be U.S. Representative William A. Burwell in a letter on September 17th about Randolph's, quote, bold and unauthorized assertions. For the president, matters were only set to go from bad to worse. Before we discuss a letter that Jefferson had just received around the same time as he was writing to Burwell, we must first hop across the Atlantic and check out matters in Great Britain. As soon as U.S. Minister to Britain James Monroe had learned that Charles James Fox was to be the new foreign secretary, he launched an all-out quote-unquote charm offensive as described by Monroe biographer Tim McGrath. He was determined not to let this opportunity go to waste. Monroe even managed to get Fox to mention the issue of impressment before he brought it up. As Monroe reported back to Secretary of State Madison, the new foreign secretary quote, put me more at ease in that short time than I had felt with any person in office since I've been in England. It wouldn't be long, though, before Monroe learned that he would not be alone in negotiating with the British government. Rather than learning about it in a letter from his friends Jefferson and Madison, Monroe learned of the appointment of William Pinckney as his fellow peace commissioner in the London Morning Post. Madison's instructions arrived a week later, again from McGrath. Quote, in breaking the news to Monroe, Madison did not explain that Pinckney was being sent back to London at Congress's insistence, not as a rebuke of Monroe's efforts. By neglecting to clarify that point, Madison produced a long rupture in their relationship. To add insult to injury, around the same time that Pinckney arrived in London, Foreign Secretary Fox fell ill with quote-unquote severe rheumatism. By late August, it was apparent to all that Fox was not long for this world. Thus, British Prime Minister Lord Grenville assigned Fox's nephew, Henry Vassal Fox, Lord Holland, and the President of the Board of Trade, William Eden, Baron Auckland, as substitutes to negotiate with the American commissioners. McGrath notes that, quote, Fortunately for Monroe, Holland and Auckland shared Fox's liberal views. Fox ultimately passed away on September 13th, and his role as both Foreign Secretary and party leader of the Whigs, would fall to Charles Gray, Viscount Halleck. This did not mean, however, that his brief time as head of the Foreign Office did not produce results. As described by Dick Leonard, quote, Almost entirely due to the personal efforts of Grenville and Fox, it, i.e. the ministry, had pushed ahead with measures to abolish the slave trade, which despite all the efforts of William Wilberforce and the encouragement of Pitt, had languished as a political issue for a generation. When the bill passed the House of Commons, Holland and Auckland approached Monroe and Pinckney about the possibility of the United States joining Britain in abolishing the slave trade. 
We'll come back to that matter in a future episode, but for now, let's leave Monroe and Pinckney negotiating in London and return back to Monticello, where President Jefferson had received a disconcerting letter. One of the many questions that students of history have had over the years about the Burr conspiracy, and indeed, a question that contemporaries had, was just when Jefferson learned about Burr's schemings, and what did he know at what time? For Jefferson's part, as noted by historian James E. Lewis Jr., the statements that we have from him, quote, about the sources and timing of the cabinet's information are misleading, despite a precision that includes not only the names of the authors, but, at times, even the dates on which Jefferson received the letters. The list of informants are far from complete, and the claims about the timing of the first warnings are off by at least nine months. We know from extant records that there was a warning from someone in the executive branch as early as February 1806. The U.S. District Attorney in Kentucky, Joseph Hamilton Davis, wrote a letter to Jefferson on February 10th and sent eight other letters as well between February and September 1806, providing the president with information about the conspiracy. Davis, in his February 10th letter, asserted that, quote, You must have remarked Mr. Burr's journey out to this country last year. What was he after? To escape persecution? That can't be, because it never followed him out of his own state, and he spent the whole of last winter at the seat of government without danger. Was it to see the country? No, he did not see it. He warned Jefferson, quote, Let Governor Claiborne have no knowledge on hand concerning this thing. Show this letter to nobody. Mr. Burr's connections are more extensive than any man supposes. Though the February 10th letter was the first time Davies mentioned Burr, a month earlier, on January 10th, he had written to Jefferson warning that, quote, Spanish intrigues have been carried on among our people. We have traitors among us. And named General James Wilkinson as someone he suspected of being a Spanish agent. Again, as he would a month later, Davis warned the president to keep his letter secret as, quote, depend on it. You have traitors around you to give the alarm in time to their friends. Though Jefferson did respond to Davis's letter of January 10th, quote, to request a full communication of everything known or heard by you relating to it, i.e. the intrigues, and particularly of the names of all persons, whether engaged in the combination or witnesses to any part of it. Davis's subsequent letters would go unanswered, which Davis noted in a letter on July 14th. Though he noted that his continued investigations into the conspiracies and intrigues were, quote, not sanctioned by the express commands of my government, he felt that, quote, my duty, however, as a citizen to you is not fulfilled, and that, quote, every further inquiry I make will be to fortify myself against the malice of these men if it reaches their ears that I have taken concern in this matter. I imagine you're asking yourself, dear listener, why Jefferson didn't take action when a district attorney was telling him that people were plotting schemes that threatened the nation. Well, it didn't help his cause that Davis was a Federalist. He was so much of a Federalist and a fan of Alexander Hamilton that he had actually adopted Hamilton as his middle name. He also had links to Chief Justice John Marshall, having married Marshall's youngest sister. Davis, however, was not the only one warning the president about Burr. Jefferson had received two anonymous letters in December 1805 
linking Burr's plans with those of Francisco de Miranda and asserting that Burr had been plotting with British minister to the U.S., Anthony Mary. Word of Burr's plots had even made it into the newspapers, as we discussed last episode. In the summer and fall of 1806, reports and articles about prior plots and conspiracies, as well as active ones, filled the pages of a new paper called The Western World that was published in Frankfort, Kentucky. As described by David Stewart, quote, The Western World's attacks mixed fact and fantasy. Yet many of the editor's charges were backed by evidence, especially the claim that Spanish bribes were paid for years to Wilkinson and other Kentuckians. Those named in the articles instantly became objects of public mistrust. As was the custom at the time, these articles would be reprinted in other newspapers in other parts of the nation, including some in the East to which President Jefferson subscribed, including the National Intelligencer and the Richmond Inquirer. As with Davis, though, the president might have dismissed these reports as the Western world was accused of being associated with the Marshall family and the Federalist Party in Kentucky. Finally, though, in September 1806, Jefferson received an account that could not be dismissed. Colonel George Morgan, a veteran of the Revolutionary War who lived near Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania, wrote to the president on August 29th about a conversation he had had with the former vice president the day prior. Burr had talked about the fragile nature of the Union, predicting that the West would split from the eastern states within five years, and speaking with scorn of the ineffectiveness of Jefferson's administration to combat disunion, quote, insisted he could seize New York with 500 men, or Washington City with 200. When Jefferson replied to Morgan on September 19th, he thanked him for the information, quote, which claims the more attention as it coincides with what has been learned from other quarters. The president then asked Morgan to see what other information he might be able to learn about Burr's plots with, quote, whatever zeal you might think proper to use in this pursuit. As our time is drawn short, we'll have much more to discuss about Burr's intrigues in the next couple of episodes, but just know that, though for whatever reason it took him a while to take it seriously, by September 1806, President Jefferson was finally convinced that a conspiracy of some sort was afoot and that his administration would need to respond to the threat lest the future of the nation be imperiled. Next episode, though, we'll begin with the return of an expedition that set out towards the West all the way back in episode 3.22. That's right. Lewis and Clark are back in an episode I'd like to call Glimmers of Hope. Special thanks again to John Morden for providing the intro quote for this episode. Special thanks also to our audio editor, Andrew Foncook, for his efforts on this episode. As always, I'd also like to thank the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music for this episode. To find the sources used for this episode, past episodes of the podcast, or more information about the Itinerant Band, head over to the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to me, I can be reached in numerous ways. I'm reachable by email at Presidency's Podcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also connect with me via social media on Facebook at Presidency's, on Twitter at Presidency's89, and on Instagram at Presidency's Podcast, again, all one word. Thanks so much to all of you for listening. Until next time, 
Stay safe and healthy. Be kind to one another. And take care, dear friends. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.